The goodness of the Lord, dear brothers and sisters, brings us back to the topic of repentance, this being our fourth study under the title of Making Repentance Clear. It is the intention this afternoon to cover the last two of five primary principles extracted from the portrayal of pious prayer and repentance given in Daniel chapter 9. I want to relay to you just by reading the first three of five principles that we have already covered in previous studies. I refer you back to those teachings. If you happen to be listening to this message and not aware of what these ideas refer to, you'll find plenty of substance in the previous three teachings. The first principle is biblical repentance understands by the books the characteristics and consequences of sin. The second primary principle is biblical repentance clears things up with God first through personal conviction and private petition. And then last Sunday we looked at the third primary principle and I'll give it to you in its shortened version. Biblical repentance is clear about who owes who. And I do submit that in order to understand what that general heading stands for, you do need to avail yourself of the details of the teaching of last Sunday, which was the third of the series, Making Repentance Clear. I bring you then to the fourth primary principle. This will be extracted out of the 11th through 14th verses of Daniel chapter 9. And the principle is the following. Biblical repentance makes a clear turn toward the truth. Biblical repentance makes a clear turn toward the truth. Verse 11 of Daniel 9. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us, and the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against God, and he hath confirmed his words, which he spake unto us, and against our judges that judged us, bringing upon us a great evil, for under the whole heaven hath not been done as hath been done unto Jerusalem." As it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil is come upon us. Yet we made not our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous and all his works which he does. For we obeyed not his voice. When things occur to our lives that approximate what Daniel states here in Daniel chapter 9, I direct you to the heart of this section, the 12th verse, 
where he says, under the whole heaven has not been done as has been done to Jerusalem of all cities that has as its population the very people of God. When we experience something so profound, so deeply disturbing to our lives, that's not the time to shirk that experience off and simply say, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. I was dealt a bad hand. That's just the way life goes. There's no real deep lesson embedded in this experience. Quite to the contrary, not to go back over all that we've covered in previous teachings, but that's the time to get to the books and to study the Word of God so that you can understand the path that you are on. For the Word of God is a lamp onto our feet. And I state to you that in this section of Daniel's prayer of repentance, he is drilling down into the heart of the explanation as to why this great evil has come upon the people and the place of Almighty God. And what he tells us here is that initially there was a departing. Did you notice that in verse 11? All of Israel has transgressed thy law. When we are in the context of God's chastening, when it's somewhat communal, when God has something against the churches, as he does in Revelation 2 and 3, even if he says, some have kept their garments white, if they are truly going to continue to keep their garments pure, they are going to say, God forbid that I should cease to pray. God forbid that I shouldn't intercede. God forbid that I shouldn't repent along with the rest of my brothers and sisters because I I too am a man of unclean lips. Hear this. I don't only dwell in the midst of a people that have transgressed God's word. Daniel is saying, now that we're in this situation, the spirit of God is dealing with us and I reflect upon my own life. I realize that we have all transgressed thy word, Lord. That's important to see. I'm wanting to stress that there is a communal awareness in Daniel's prayer. And we too must have that when it's proper to work in that mode. It could be relative to ourselves as a family. It could be relative to ourselves as a married couple. It could be relative to ourselves as friends that have just been together and God is speaking to our hearts about whatever. It can be relative to ourselves as a church. It can even be relative to ourselves as a nation. I know that in that context, and the language of Paul, they are without. There's a real distinction. So it's not as deep and penetrating as it is in these other forums of a family or of the church. But nonetheless, dear brothers and sisters, God forbid... If the Christian churches cease to mourn and repent for the sins of the nations, and I cannot follow that line of thought presently to any great length, but I do want you to see with the covenant people that Daniel is saying, all of Israel has transgressed your law, your word. And then he describes what they have done. 
And this is now where we're turning more directly to the fourth principle. Biblical repentance makes a clear turn toward the truth. For what Daniel is saying as he describes with personal awareness as to what the nature of this sin is, so that then he can fix the problem personally and recommend to his brothers and sisters precisely what we need to do to remediate this condition that we're in. He says, even by departing. That's the key term for the moment. In the Hebrew, it is the word sur. And I will let you know that it's within the cognate family of the word shuv. And that is the more well-known term. Shuv is, it's the more well-known term in the Old Testament. And this is cognate to that word. It means the term sure that is translated here by departing it means to remove to turn away to put someone at a distance indeed it can be so activated and so lived within this concept of departing that in some connotations it has the meaning of abolish Imagine if that was said here. In many respects, that would be a true statement. We have transgressed thy law even by abolishing thy word as it relates to how we are responding or relating to your word. Let's continue to read a little bit more. That they might not obey thy voice. Isn't that an interesting statement? This idea of departing carries with it, as I've already stated to you, the concept, the action of turning. And we understand now what they are turning from. This is a very specific act with a very definite motive. They are turning from God. They are turning from the voice of His servants. They do not want to hear what God has to say to their lives. And this is what they were doing habitually. The nation for many decades were in the habit as for example, Stephen says when he's addressing the Jews, he says, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit stands for the voice of God. And what we're seeing here is that the sin is described as turning away from God's voice, turning away from the word, turning away from the truth of Almighty God. Now, one dictionary of Old Testament theology, which takes up various Hebrew terms and then gives us definitions as they are developed from taking in the content of the Old Testament, gives us the following remarks on the Hebrew word shur. And it reads as follows, A common meaning for this verb which occurs about 300 times in the Old Testament, 
is to, first of all, turn aside physically. Recall with me, I already told you that this word can mean to put somebody at a distance, to physically move away from someone. So continuing with the quotation, this term can stand for a physical, literal, as it were, natural, material application to turn aside physically from what one is doing. As, for example, is the case in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 4, where we read, And when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside from what he was doing to see the burning bush, is effectively what's being spoken of there. There we have the same word that in Daniel chapter 9 and in verse 11 is translated departing, And there it has a negative connotation. Here I'm illustrating to your hearts that it carries this idea of being called to, being attracted to, your attention being shifted for some reason, some internal desire within your being from what you were doing to something else. In this case, there was a burning bush and the presence of God was in this burning bush. And within the being of Moses, there was a stirring within him because we see that when God saw that he made this decision to not just carry on with his life and his own interests, but to turn aside and to investigate God's presence and what God was doing in his life, then God continued to speak to him. But you see here, we can put that in the category of a physical turning, certainly entailing, as I just stated, a deeper spiritual motive. But nonetheless, so you get the vision in your mind, this word depart can stand for a literal movement of a person from one place to the next or turning away from something that is occupying their attention towards something new that now has attracted them. The word is also employed for someone or something departing from its present place. As is said in Numbers 12 and verse 10 about the glory cloud. There we read, and the cloud departed from off the tabernacle. Once again, we see the idea of something moving from its present position. Now we're one step away from the sort of real physical orientation of Moses' body turning from whatever he was doing and physically turning his shoulders and his eyes and his face toward the burning bush. Now we're speaking of the glory cloud, which indeed visually left the tabernacle. So in a sense, it's a physical movement, but it has a deeper spiritual idea behind it. And it takes us one step more toward the moral and spiritual idea, which I want to express to you, and then we're going to give more attention to that. The Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis goes on to say, 
for the most part, sure, has to do with the moral, spiritual direction someone is taking. Persons turn from the right road, but spiritually. Not unlike the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Israel, after a new beginning at the Exodus, was, quote, quick to turn aside from the way that God commanded them. That's Exodus 32 and verse 8. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I have commanded them, and they have made themselves a molten calf. That which is translated in Exodus 32, turned aside, is the same term that Daniel uses in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 11. And what are we reading in Exodus 32, 8? And what is the principle that covers all of these moral applications when we're dealing with turning aside from God's Word, turning aside from the truth of God's Word, turning from His voice. What we're talking about is that one does not want to hear God's Word. One does not want to hear God's voice. One wants to hide from God. One wants to resist the truth. One has given his or her attention to something in a substitute or something as a substitute. In Exodus 32, they turn away from God's Word and they turn themselves to the molten calf. Now, this principle is given to us over and over again throughout the Scriptures. I do want to add a New Testament witness to this concept so that you can ground it in these fundamental texts. In Romans chapter 1 and in verse 25, the entire context, as a matter of fact, of this section of Romans chapter 1 is essentially dealing with this idea of turning and departing from the living God and then turning to your own interest, turning to your own golden calf, turning to the glitter and the fun and the rising up and playing of life. And that is what Daniel is saying that Israel had been doing for decades. They had turned away from the power of truth, turned away from the holiness of God, turned away from the good counsel of God's prophets, and they had turned themselves to their own interests because they did not want to obey God's voice. This is the nature of what the sin is, and we must understand these things in order to make repentance clear. This is what transgression is generally described as. That is to say, when we are in transgression, we are in this act, this type of act. Well, let's look in Romans chapter 1 and verse 25. There we read that sinners, humanity, mankind changed the truth of God. Meta alasso. They went from one thing to another. That is what the essence of the compound Greek word means. 
That's translated change. They went from God's word, as we're told, they went from the truth of God, which had been brought to their attention, and they turned their attention to a lie. And then they worshipped and they served the creation of their own lusts. That is not to say, of course, that man made the creature, but what I'm stating is that, like with the golden calf, though the ore of gold was used to create this figure, and man didn't create the ore, the metal, or even the concept of the calf, God made that, yet it was the working of God's creation to the satisfying of their own personal lusts. And so when one turns away from the truth of God and puts something of creation in its place, then that is you making something after your own lusts. And it is said here that they worship the creature more than the creator who is blessed forevermore. I want you to see that what is involved here in the description of sin that Paul is speaking about is entirely in keeping with what Daniel is talking about. There is the idea of changing. There is the idea of turning. And it is not nebulous. It is not undefined. It is not left unclear as to what one is turning from. One is turning from the truth. One is turning from the voice of God. One is turning from the conviction of the Spirit, and one is turning to a lie. One is turning to a creation of your own desires. And brothers and sisters, what Paul goes on to teach in the 26th verse of Romans 1, is the principle that when we change the truth, we also change ourselves. The covenant people that were given the wisdom and the glory of God's holy word, by which their lives were to be defined so that they would become a peculiar people that would manifest the glories of God and they would develop in their character and they would have strength and substance like the holy prophets did, like Daniel himself did. But nonetheless, when they chose vanity, they themselves become vain. When they chose idols, they themselves became like the idols that cannot see, that cannot hear, that cannot understand, that cannot deliver their own lives from any sort of situation within which they are in bondage. Paul says in verse 26, For this cause... Because men have turned, departed from the voice of God to their own affections, their own calves, their own lies, that they speak to themselves, supplying the teaching for itching ears. They are their own teachers. They tickle their own ears. God says, by the Spirit, in verse 26, for this cause God gave them up on to vile affections, for even their women did change. Meta alasso. The only other place in the entire Bible 
where that Greek term is used. It's only used twice in the Greek New Testament. That does not necessarily prove anything you want to say, but what I am pointing out to you, it does prove this. There is a verbal correspondence between what is happening in verse 25 and what is the result in verse 26. And it's purposely stated in the way in which it is by the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul using specific language so that one can learn when you change the Word of God, when you turn and go to something other than the Word of God, you depart from it, but you depart from it by turning to something else. Not just going nowhere. You turn to a lie. You turn to your lust. You turn to something that you make for your own interest, a golden calf. Then what is stated here is that you change yourself. You will be changed. Even their women changed the natural use into that which is against nature. What are we reading here? Women began to change from the God-given definition of what a lady should look like, what a lady should think about, what a lady should do. When you're seeing these women act out their lives now in these various cultures that have turned away from God, you look at them and you ask yourself, are they even women anymore? The very presence, the very definition of women has changed, as well as men, of course. And it didn't change just out of no particular set of circumstances. There is a causal relationship between departing from God, departing from His Word, departing from His voice, and you losing the definition of your own life. You losing the order that God has set you within and finding yourself on some path that is altering all of your compass within your heart, altering the way in which you can follow the map of rationality and truth and ethics. You are wandering around, chasing your lust, chasing your lies. You're living in vanity. And this is what Israel was doing to the extent that God had to eject them out of their own land so he could impress upon their souls. You don't even know where you are. You don't know where you're going. You're wandering all over the place, Israel. And I'm going to put you in a situation where physically you will be dispersed. You will be wanderers. Have you ever heard of the wandering Jew? It started with wandering away, turning from God's voice in his truth, and thereby changing the very definition of who the people of God are to be. In Hosea chapter 14, as I stated to you previously, the Hebrew word used in Daniel 9.11, shur, is cognate to shuv. And we have that Hebrew word given to us in Hosea 14, beginning with verse 1. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, what is the principle we're thinking through together presently? Biblical repentance makes a clear turn toward the truth by identifying specifically the nature of Israel's sin as being a departing, a turning from God, not wanting to obey the voice of God, 
Daniel knows that the remedy, as he states, as he prays for, when he says, what is occurring to us, even though we've turned from the word of God, verse 13, is the sentence, the judgment, the promised result, though the promise in this case has a negative effect in terms of their experience. It's not very enjoyable, but nonetheless, what is happening to us is according to the law of Moses. Verse 12 says, he has confirmed his words, which he spake against us and against our rulers and in bringing this great evil upon us. All this evil, he said, has come upon us according to God's word, which we turned from. Yet we did not make our prayer before the Lord God. We continued to ignore the Lord as he brought conviction to our hearts. But Daniel isn't following that pattern, is he? Daniel, as our studies are all about, is making repentance clear. And I hope you get the principle in your heart. If you're going to be one who makes repentance clear, you have to cease turning from the voice of God and thinking that the word won't catch up to you. No, the word of the prophets will take hold of you eventually. And Daniel makes his prayer before the Lord God for this purpose, as you read in the end of verse 13, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. I trust you see the connection between departing from the voice of God and the understanding that shuv, repentance, what does repentance essentially mean? It means to turn. It means to change your mind. It means to have an about face from going your own way and now turning to the Lord's way. And since the original problem was not wanting to hear God's word, departing from the truth, I grant this may sound very elementary, dear brothers and sisters, but repentance is a first principle of the life of a Christian. And so as elementary as it is, it is still commonly avoided, which is to say that some are not even passing kindergarten grade tests as it relates to spiritual development. If you have departed from God and you are thereby experiencing the chastening hand of the Lord, as it says in verse 11, therefore the curse is poured upon us. You could have known exactly what your experience would be. Why? Because it's written in the law of Moses. Go on and read the rest of verse 11. It's the oath. It's written it was preached by the servant of God, but we have sinned against this. We have not wanted to hear the voice of God. And Daniel realizes what Israel now needs to do, what I personally am committed to doing, is to turn from my golden calf, to turn from my vile affection, to turn from the definition that I've adopted of my own life that is out of divine order, that is out of the standards of God's word. I am going to turn from my iniquities and I am going to turn to the pursuit of God's truth. The end of verse 13, so that I can understand God's truth. So when we come to Hosea 
14, as we began to read, we understand what is going on here. O Israel, does it not make sense to you that repentance is specifically this? Return to your God, for you have fallen by thine own iniquity. Take with you words. What words do you think you should take with you? Let me tell you very directly, and I will confirm it with additional statements from God's Word. You should take the Word of God. You should take the truth. You have no words to bring to God in the form of repentance if you have been in the practice of violating God's Word because you don't want to listen to His voice. You can't repent thoroughly by just replacing somebody else's opinion or your altered state of mind as it relates to whatever is going on in your life. Bring that before God. Offer Him a half-sick calf as a sacrifice of praise and repentance and expect God to receive it. You have to get into the Word of God and turn clearly to the truth and take those words with you to the Lord. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto Him, take away all iniquity, which is to say, I'm turning to your truth. Continue to bring the truth to me. Let me know the truth and continue in the truth that I might know the truth and be made free and receive us graciously. Oh, yes, indeed, as solid and as searching and as probing as these messages are, my dear brothers and sisters, they are all founded within the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, as Hosea says, and as will be a theme to what we're looking at today, Essentially, what he says at the end of verse 2 is then we can actually exercise ourselves in genuine religion, in true worship and communion with God. So will we render the calves of our lips. In Hebrew language, in Old Testament Jewish language, that means then we can enter into pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father. Because before we do that, when we're either having our full attention on our sins and yet going to church anyway, going to temple anyway, or we're half turned, but not all the way to God, or we've turned to our sin and seen that our sinful patterns are not going to work in this community or work in my family or work at my job place. But instead of turning to the word of God, I'm going to turn to somebody else's opinion and I'm going to adopt that for a while because the last thing I want is the voice of God in my life. The last thing I want is to have to face the absolute truth of who I am and what God is saying to my life. You can't bring pure religion before God if you don't make repentance clear. You have to bring truth to God in order to make repentance clear. This is indeed what we are taught in a passage everyone knows. But let's pay attention to what John the Apostle is stating. And we will see that it's in keeping with Hosea 14 in verse 2. It's in keeping with what Daniel has to say in verse 13 when he speaks of turning from his iniquities that they might understand the truth. In 1 John chapter 1, the Bible says, if you're going to come before Almighty God and you're going to have the position that there's nothing in your life that has to be corrected 
and brought into alignment with God's word, then you're not telling the truth. Let's start there. Your attention isn't even on the word to begin with. You're so distracted from the word of God and from the true voice of God and from the real servants of God that you're not even aware that sin is something at some level we all have to deal with and face. John says, if we say that we have no sin, we are living in deception. We are dancing around a golden calf and the truth is not in us. But verse 9 says, if God awakens your soul out of this place of self-deception, in that you're distracted from what God is saying to you, you're something like Adam and Eve in the garden. You have transgressed God's word, and now the curse is upon you. And when God's voice comes into the garden... You turn away from God and you hide for Him and you obfuscate and you try to make it look like nothing is really happening here. We just happen to be behind a few trees, that's all. God calls you forth and He says, what have you done? And you essentially say, nothing that bad, but Eve did a few things that weren't good. And Eve says, I didn't do nothing very bad, but that serpent sure did. And all the while, you're not turning back to God. You're creating your own little lie, your own little story for what God is trying to get out of your mouth in terms of dealing with the truth. They specifically violated God's word. They did something very definite. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They put their own hands on that fruit. They put it to their mouth. They took a bite. They felt the juices. It went down into their body. Brothers and sisters, we know where we have sinned. If the word of God is allowed to penetrate our conscience, and so if we come to the truth, as opposed to deceiving ourselves, then verse 9 speaks in the language of Hosea 14 in verse 2. Take words with you. Take the words of the scriptures with you. Verse 9 says, if we confess our sins... That concept, homo means to speak the same thing. That's precisely what it means. To confess your sin is the act of facing the true definition of what your behavior is and no longer turning a deaf ear when God's voice is seeking to get your attention, no longer allowing yourself to redefine your life in whatever concepts you wish for it to be, you're in one way or another out of divine order. Maybe you're out of divine order in your marriage relationship. It's actually, according to the Bible's definition, it is a status of adultery because the man or the woman that you are cohabitating with is not your lawfully wedded wife or husband according to the word of God. But I've shared with you before, I've encountered individuals who come to church who state, one plainly stated to me, effectively the following, God can speak to me about anything, but he cannot speak to me about my marriage. In other words, I'll come to church, I'll listen to a lot of the teaching of God's word, but if you're going to meddle with my marriage, I'm out of here. Well, dear friends, I don't know what pastors across America and the world 
think about such a statement, but this pastor feels like effectively you are already out of here. Because you, by that statement, are saying, I don't want to hear the voice of God. I'm going to turn away from the Lord if something touches my life too deeply. If the sin wound is probed too perplexingly, then I'm going to turn and depart from God to my own lie, to my own beautiful golden calf, my little bedtime story for myself that I tell myself about what a good boy I am. These be thy gods, oh Jimmy. These be thy gods, oh Sally. God allows you to live this way. Whatever the particular issue is, repentance says the same thing that God says about our life, about our orthopraxy or lack thereof. In other words, the straight doctrine of God's word, the orthodoxy, should be corresponding with our practice. We should have straightforward practice. John Baptist said, make the crooked straight. Get a hold of God's word and then start working on your life, getting the excavators and the bulldozers in there and straightening out that path. So we need to confess our sins. You know, sometimes you might think that the only way you can do that is through a great emotional display. And we certainly are not opposed to emotions when it comes to repentance, but emotions aren't sufficient, that's for sure. At the core of real repentance is bringing the words that speak to your sinful actions. Is that not what, for example, Nathan did for David? David should have come up with those words on himself for himself. But Nathan was an exhibition of the mercy of God, and Nathan brought words to David, and thankfully, David turned from his sins, took up the words that God described David's life with, if you're following me, and in a short short phrase, when David said, in agreement with Nathan effectively, I am the man, I have sinned. That's what he said. Nathan said, here's the definition of you, David. You aren't the king of Israel. Not fundamentally, not in this condition of sin. Don't misunderstand me. I understand he's still functioning as the king of Israel. But when he's in this state of unrepentance and satisfying himself with the definition that I'm the king of Israel, I'm God's beloved, everything is fine. That's not true. He changed who he was by sinning with Bathsheba and murdering her husband. God said, here's what you actually are. You're a heartless man that isn't thankful for what blessings God has already given you, and you always have to have more and more and more. So you took it in a most flagrant, vicious, and atrocious way. That's who you are, David. Amen. And David confessed his sins. He said, homologeo, thou sayest. You know what I'm saying? He turned to the truth. And when we do, thanks be to God, there is a promise that's founded on the precious blood of Jesus. He is the redemption for our sins. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of anybody in the universe, past or present, any human being who will repent. 
He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Dear brethren, how would you be cleansed from all unrighteousness if you haven't even figured out what you did wrong? You have to bring words with you, and the words are the truth of God's Word. Because verse 10 comes back and says, If you haven't listened to what I said in verse 9, then we're right back to where we were in verse 8. If you're not taking the Word of God and agreeing with Him when He defines what sin is and repenting on the basis of that definition, then you're right back to where we were in verse 8. You say, I haven't sinned. And you're making God the liar. When, dear brothers and sisters, from everything that we have been reading in Romans chapter 1, Sinners are the liars. They're the ones who turn the truth of God to a lie. The truth of God says that as long as your lawfully wedded spouse is alive, it is adultery for you to be married to another man or woman, which is to say another partner. And that's just for starters. We haven't even gotten into the question of homosexuality and transgenderism and all things along those lines. We haven't gotten into shacking up as opposed to entering into a covenant of marriage. And what I'm saying to you is that you can lie to yourself for as much as you wish. You can say the entire culture agrees with me. Well, the entire culture then has turned from God to a lie. And it's not repenting. And therefore, they're going to fall by their iniquity, unless they do repent. Well, in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 5, we have a statement that Daniel is working in the same domain as in Daniel 9 and verse 11, and that is working within the cause and effect relationship between departing from God and the loss of the blessing, otherwise known as the entrance of the curse. Listen to the language of Daniel 9, verse 11. Yea, yes, it is true. All Israel has transgressed your word because they departed. Sure, it's possible to be transgressing God's word because you're simply not aware of what the Word has to say on this particular issue. That's something to consider, but that's at a level that isn't really in play with respect to what I'm speaking about. And it's not in play with respect to what Daniel is addressing. He is stating specifically the transgression of the Word is within the act of turning from God so that, as he says, that they might not obey thy voice. They had the voice of God. They did not want to deal with it. So they turned away from it to their own sin. And Daniel goes on to say, Therefore, the curse is poured out upon us and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. In other words, dear brothers and sisters, as Jesus said, think not that I will judge you in the last day. 
He says the law of Moses, the word of God that you're seemingly trusting in will be that which is used as the standard of the assize, the assessment of our life. Therefore, it's a simple calculation if you have a spiritual mind. How do you get ahead of this so that you're not surprised on the judgment day? Get your life in alignment with the truth of God. Turn with all your heart to the truth and ask the Lord to bring those words to you. And then as your heart is trained and you recognize where you're failing the word of God, like in Josiah's day, you discover the word of God in your own life. And then you begin to reform according to the word of God and you confess your sins. God will clean you up before you come before his holy presence. But Jeremiah 17 and verse 5 says, Thus saith the Lord, unblessed. Lacking blessing, problems galore, depression, dourness, difficulty, unfruitfulness, breakdown and desolation of varying manifestations. Short word for all of that is the language of Jeremiah 17.5. Cursed be the man that trusts in man, trust in himself, trust in somebody like him and makes flesh his arm, turns his attention to his own works, to his own philosophy, to his own religion, to his own making. His arm creates his truth. And whose heart shuv, whose heart departs from the Lord. You see the cause and effect relationship. When a heart departs from God, it doesn't just depart into a gray, undefined area. Dear brothers and sisters, I hope the message in this sermon gets deeply embedded into your soul. If you are departing from the Lord, don't lie to yourself and say you don't have sin. Don't say, I just don't understand. Say, it just hasn't been that clear to me. We're not talking about some doctrine that hasn't been preached on before. We're talking about when God's servants and the voice of God from His Word and in your prayer time, the convicting influence of the Holy Spirit has been trying to deal with you for years and you like Adam and Eve are turning away from that and to your own arm or to somebody else's efforts to modify or mitigate or say peace, peace to your soul when there really is no peace. The Bible is saying you depart from the Lord not to nowhere but to yourself or to man and his creation and even his religious concerns instructions you turn to yourself from the lord and the bible says you're going to eventually lack blessing israel is an example for us they went on for years and years and years in this mode of behavior before the living god while he rose up early and was very patient with them do you understand what i'm saying but eventually payday came 
And when Daniel, as a spiritual man, is analyzing the situation of Israel and recognizing what he needs to do to make repentance clear so that the remnant can get back in God's favor and they can rebuild the temple and reestablish Jerusalem, he identifies specifically, we departed from God because we did not want to hear his voice and we turned to ourselves. And in order to fix this, we need you, Lord, to turn us back to the truth and help us to understand what the truth is. Dear brothers and sisters, sin is a departing from life and a turning to death. What would repentance then look like? That's the essence of this message. It's elementary. If sin, as I have been proving to you, if I'm not mistaken, and we'll continue to give verses that make this point so very clear that, quite truthfully, we are without excuse. The Bible says effectively over all of this, like Moses once said, I'm giving you all this word, I'm giving you lengthy sermons, which is what the book of Deuteronomy is, and then he says, it's up to you, choose life or choose death, choose you. And I'm saying sin is a departing from life. And that's not it. That's not the end of it. It is a turning to death. So repentance must be a departing from death and a turning to life. But wherein does life reside? Life doesn't reside in simply an alternate opinion. Life doesn't reside in a ratcheting down of the egregiousness of your sinful behavior. Life resides, as Jesus says in John 14, 6, specifically in Christ, in the truth, in the way. And therefore, when we read in Jeremiah 17, in verse 13, O Lord, the hope of Israel, you are our hope, Yahweh, all that forsake thee, shall be ashamed. And they that depart from me shall be written in the dust. They will return to dust. The meaning of their life will be vanity and emptiness. They'll be written in the dust of the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Dear brothers and sisters, we're wrapping up the first point for this afternoon, which is the fourth point of the overall series and investigation of Daniel chapter 9. And I'm just pressing upon your souls and enlarging upon the idea that Daniel is working with. He is stating in a relatively straightforward manner, we departed from God. We departed from your truth. We departed from your servants. Therefore, repentance must entail a turning to the truth. It must be very clear. We need to get back to the Word of God on these various issues. And here in Jeremiah 17 and verse 13, it's given in this language, which might help to bring it home to your soul. They departed from God, as you see. They forsook the Lord, as we are told. And they forsook what? 
the fountain of living waters. Therefore, repentance must be moving away from the cisterns, the broken cisterns that we make for ourselves that ultimately can hold no water and truly give no refreshment. They have no true source of salvation. You must come back to the fountain of living waters, brothers and sisters. And that is solely the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word. The Word of God, pure and unadulterated, alone can wash you with the washing of the water of the Word and prepare Jesus' bride to be holy and without spot, without wrinkle, without any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. We need this Word of the Lord, this living waters. But they had turned from the living waters to a different source of refreshment to their soul that had a sweeter taste, at least temporally. Amen? And they need to realize that I can't just go from that sweet source of sinful patterns and just reduce the sugar a little bit and nonetheless still avoid the fountain of living waters, which sometimes, like the very book of God, when it first enters into your belly, it can have the sensation of bitterness before it heals the Dead Sea waters and brings life afresh into your being. Listen to the idea that is given to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking here effectively to Nicodemus, certainly within the context of that event as relayed in John chapter 3, this is precisely what we're talking about. This fits in with Daniel chapter 9 and the other passages we've been reflecting on. Jesus says, John perhaps the Baptist says, the Word of God says, it's debated who is the original voice speaking these things at this moment in John chapter 3. But hear the word of the Lord. For everyone that does evil turns away from the voice of God, departs from the light, turns away from the truth, focuses on some glittering golden calf and calls that my light, my religion, my revelation, my truth. Some romantic story says this is my truth. But it is a turning from the pure light of God's Word. Everyone that does evil hates the light. That's the language of Scripture, not, not Brother William. Not simply the pastor of the upper room Christian assembly. It's in your Bible, Christian. Everyone that does evil, how evil does evil have to be in order for it to be described in the way in which it is here in verse 20 of John 3. Everyone that does evil hates the light. I suppose if it's a relatively little evil, then you have a relatively little hatred of the light. But is any Christian satisfied with being told that you hate the light? And one way you can know if this is true about you is to look in your soul and say, do I or do I not come to the light? Do I or do I not come to the voice of God? Do I or do I not appreciate the preaching from God's servants? Do I even care to find out who they are and avail myself of that ministry? Because the scriptures say, like in Daniel chapter 9, verse 11 and following, everyone that does evil forsakes the truth. They don't come to the light. They don't come to the truth. 
because they don't want their deeds to be reproved. They don't want to change. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to deal with it. I don't want to go to a church that preaches the doctrines of Jesus on these various sensitive issues. I would rather have my ears tickled. I would rather stay away from the voice of God. But verse 21 says, They who are repentant, in my view, the truly born again, the real children of God, the real regenerate individuals, the Daniels, the Davids, upon repentance, they turn, as Daniel says in verse 13, they turn to the light. They come on purpose to their Bibles and pick up the very text that is probing their soul. They search for the books. They search for the ministries that will bring the light of God's truth to their particular issue. They come to the light. They come to the fountain of living waters that their behavior, their deeds, their actions, what they're thinking, how they're practicing their life, it might be made manifest. It might be tested. It might be brought under the scrutiny of God's holy word. It might be made manifest as to whether or not this is a work of God or it is a calf creation of the arm of man under which the word of God says no blessing will ultimately be experienced. In the language of the wisdom literature, there is a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. There's almost a ominous, surprise, surprise statement within that text that unless we turn to the truth, unless repentance is so clear in our souls about the various teachings of God's Word, and we get there, as we're stating, like Daniel says, by turning from our arm, turning from our golden calves, turning from our vile affections, turning from our heedlessness of God's voice, Turning to the truth, that's the only way that you're going to discover that you might be in a way that seems right to you. But surprise, surprise, the end thereof are the ways of death. There can be a culture. There can be a community. There can be an age. That is to say, the course of this world. That is to say, an historic manifestation that effectively walks in this form of religion as far as the standard manifestation of Christianity goes at large. I know this because as it relates to the era of the judges, Proverbs 14 and verse 12 effectively applies in which we are told as it relates to that entire age, that entire historic unfolding of religious activity before God. Certainly there were some exceptions, but by and large, the whole era, the whole community is described in the following words. In those days, there was no divine authority in Israel. No one lifted up the proper king and the sovereign authority of the glorious, merciful God and bowed their hearts and their minds and their wills to God's truth and wanted to support God's ministry and wanted to make sure that temple worship or tabernacle worship was pure and undefiled. 
in those days, those kind of considerations were not that much worried about. Every man was doing that which was right, seemed right in his own eyes. Dear brothers and sisters, the reason why there was a dispersion of the people of God in Daniel's day was because for years they were doing what seemed to them to be good enough. It was working for the time being, but the end thereof is dispersion. The end thereof is an ejection out from the land, out from the place of blessing before God. And does it not worry you, church of the Lord Jesus Christ, here and elsewhere, people of God, that as was the case with Israel, so too can be the case with the Gentiles. I refer you to Romans chapter 11. Take heed lest these things occur to you. Do not boast yourself against the gracious root of Jesus Christ. If the natural branches were not spared, perhaps the unnatural branches themselves will not be spared. And so I say to you, if as Romans says, there's no difference between the Gentile and the Jew, and even though you're going to church, even though you claim to be regenerate, effectively that principle is still operating in your life where there's no difference in how the Christian churches are living over against how Israel itself conducted their own walk before God, then don't you worry about the idea that the end of this pattern of life is not going to be peace. It is not going to be good. It is going to be according to the word of God that is written. And in this case, it's going to be the application of the curse. In our day, to even use the word curse is to manifest a microaggression, even in the churches of God. Think how differently was the case in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, Unlike those who do things that seem right to them, only to discover that it's not in line with the truth, he said, I came down from heaven. And though I'm as qualified as any man who has ever lived to kind of wing it, after all, I'm going to get baptized by John Baptist and I'm going to come up out of the waters and the Spirit is going to descend upon me in the likeness of the visage of a dove and I'm going to receive the Spirit without measure. So I can wing it. I can live out my life as it strikes me. I don't know if it's clear to you that Jesus was a man of the word. That is very truthful. He grew in wisdom and stature. He was a man of the word. What I'm saying to you is John 6 and verse 38. Jesus said, I didn't come down from heaven to do my own will, to do what seemed right to me. I could give you a number of examples in the scriptures where evidently Jesus was reflecting on what he should do. And he was searching for the will of God. Take, for example, at the wedding in Cana. He wasn't entirely sure immediately if he should turn the water into wine or not. And I could give you other examples throughout his ministry where he sought God as to what he should do in John chapter 8 with the woman caught in adultery because he did not come to do his own will. But what I'm pointing out to you is that in Jesus' statement, he did not simply say, I didn't come to adopt a way that seems right to me. 
And that is sort of where I stopped. You know, I made that commitment and I felt that in that I said that much, I've done my duty. To say that much is to only look at one side of the coin. And if you only look at one side of the coin, you don't really have anything to put in the temple coffer that God is going to accept. And it doesn't matter how big that coin is. Meaning you can give a mite if it's the genuine coin, then God's going to be blessed by it. What I'm trying to state is he said, I came to do the will of the one that sent me. Do you see how this principle is in keeping with what we're talking about? Daniel said in Daniel 9, verse 11 and following, We've been doing our own will. We've departed from you, God. And the principle that we're investigating is biblical repentance makes a clear turn toward the truth. So once again, if you're getting under some conviction and you're saying, I'm going to stop doing my own will, and now something else comes into that space, and then sometimes a person is surprised as to why it's not accepted as sufficient repentance. I got words. I even have nice things to say about you. Maybe nice things to say about my wife. I've seen these things in 30 years and more of ministry. And a spiritual individual is sometimes in a very difficult situation between a rock and a hard place, an unrepentant person, and the solidity of God's word that's not going to budge. And you get awfully squeezed in the middle because people begin to feel that you just don't want to give anybody any space or any credit. And what we're saying is, it's not enough to stop doing your will. You have to do the will of God. Bring with you the words that you have been violating and confess those before the Lord. And I don't say that, by the way, in the mode of a pope or a priest, by which I mean, if this idea is reduced to just human interaction, and you think of me as stating, we just need to enter the confessional booth, you and me, or whatever the individuals might be in some other religious setting, anyone who's spiritual, who believes in these ideas and maybe shared this message with you, they're not doing it in the interest of you just simply coming to to them and just giving your confession at the same time you either have the words that speak to the truth or you don't so it still boils down to as it did with the Thessalonians we are told that when the word of God entered into their life according to first Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 that they did not simply turn away from their vain idols Turn away from the distractions of their life that were keeping them from the gospel of God. Brothers and sisters, they turned from what was distracting them. And as simple as this sounds, don't miss it. Because a lot of religion is made up of, you turn from Christian science. You turn from Catholicism. You turn from unscriptural versions of Pentecostalism or any other variety of so-called Christian religion or just some secular lifestyle. You turn from these various idolatrous entities that have been crafted by man and then you attend a church and that's repentance. How could that not be repentance, someone says? Well... If it isn't a turning from those things to specifically the truth to the voice of God, as it says of the Thessalonians, they, they turn to serve 
the living and true God, then it isn't what Daniel is talking about. It's not in keeping with the burden of these studies. This is not making repentance clear. When you're really repenting of false religion, repenting of not listening to God, you know what I'm saying? Repenting of ignoring the Word of God, repenting of your delusions, then you realize, I need to turn from these idols and turn and serve, face the presence of God, the living God. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, using whatever story we come up with. As I stated a moment ago, I'm not drinking as much as I used to. I'm not philandering as much as once I did. I'm not in this version of false religion. I've left some of the occult practices. And because of those things, because I've turned from some of these idolatrous ways, I'm not listening to some of these voices. If you say that you have fellowship with God, but you're still walking in darkness, you're still walking in something that is not the truth of God. It is not the voice of God. It is not the messages of His servants then the Bible says you're still lying. You say that you have fellowship with God because you've reformed something in your life, but you're still walking not in the light. You're not coming to the light. You're not saying, what does the Bible teach about the holidays? What does the Bible teach about modesty of dress? What does the Bible teach about the definition of marriage and the definition of adultery? And as I stated before, we could drill down to more secondary questions as well, because at the point where the Spirit of God wants to speak to you about this issue, whatever it might be, God knows whether you're listening or you're turning away from Him. And so what I'm saying is, when we say that we have fellowship with God, but we're still walking not in the interest of the truth, then we're still going after our lies, the Bible says, and we're not doing the truth. But if we walk in the light... Do you see how clear this is? That's what Daniel says. Bring us back to the truth. If we walk in the light, purposely seeking out the light that God lives in, as He is in the light, then we can say we have fellowship one with another. And I believe that speaks most directly of our fellowship with the living God. And then the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from every sin. Do you hear what is being said? That when you make the change clear and you turn to the truth, that's the only context within which the scriptures clearly state that blood of the Lord Jesus will wash you and cleanse you thoroughly from your sin. Don't you want that on your soul? For your soul? I know I do. I pray to God to help me to turn to the light. I come to the light even when I don't always want to see what the light is showing me in the mirror of God's Word, the blemishes, the blots, or what have you. But I know that if I want the blessing, I've got to come to the light. And then the blood of Jesus will cleanse me from these sins and I can be in heightened and blessed fellowship with God. It's quite interesting to realize that this turning to the truth in the life of a sinner can go so deep that you yourself become a witness to the truth. Once you were a sinner, once you were the epitome, you were the visual representation of one who departs from God, a wandering Jew, if you will, and that's not anti-Semitic, it's building up a biblical connotation or, or word image. Once you were a wanderer, once 
You were a prodigal. You were the image of this thing. And brothers and sisters, if you will turn your life to the truth, a very beautiful transformation can happen through the Spirit of God in your life. They who once were witnesses of error and recklessness and confusion and calf worship and doing your own thing, seeming to you like it would all work out, but you've discovered it is the way of death and you have brought words to God and you are cleansing yourself from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit and perfecting holiness in the fear of God and your life can be transformed to the place where in the language of David, you can teach sinners what the way of the Lord looks like and how one gets there. I want to mention that concept to you as I close out this fourth point. That phrase, of course, is given to us in Psalm 51 and verse 13 from the lips of David. But I think you should know that that's down at the end of Psalm 51. Before David gets to talking about, then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be shuv. They shall be converted. They shall turn. The idea we're speaking about, where Daniel says, turn us to an understanding of the truth. And sinners, David says, shall be converted unto thee. Do you see what is happening here? That David, who once witnessed to wicked recklessness by allowing the truth to have its work in his heart, by bringing the words of God in his prayer life and in his confession before Almighty God, now his own life is used of the Lord to help others to turn onto the Lord. So you know that's in verse 13. But what I want you to see, first of all, is that prior to David being able to function in this way, he has to acknowledge his sin. We have certainly covered this, so we're not going to stress it, but I do think it's important to get this in the context so it's vividly clear. Specifically because I want to make a statement about what David is talking about here when he speaks about teaching transgressors and converting them. So, for example, in verses 3 and 4, which, as you know, come well before verse 13, well before whatever David says in the 13th verse, speaking to where his heart is now in verse 13, long before that, spiritually speaking, in the spiritual journey, he says, I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Is he doing anything in the direction of teaching other people at this moment? Is that what he's after? Not at all. Is he thinking, hey, brother, let me have the pulpit. Let me share my testimony. Let me leave, read something from the scriptures. Let me bring forth some truth. I'm going to help other people to understand something about how to walk with God. I want to be an instrument of bringing understanding to other people. I hope you understand with me that David isn't thinking along those lines at all. He knows at this moment that kind of thought pattern is completely out of sync with the Spirit of God. It makes no spiritual sense. 
where he needs to be is exactly where he says he is. I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against thee only have I sinned. I've done this evil in your sight. Verse 10 through 12, which comes just before verse 13. Listen to what he's saying. This is so critical before we get to verse 13 and think we understand what it means, what it could mean for our life or what we see in somebody else. And we think, oh, well, I realized they were in sin on that issue. I realized this minister was deceived on that particular point. And yes, it's only one week later. And now they're teaching on that topic. But that's what David did after he repented. Next week, he taught on that topic and cleared it all up for us. One week ago, this individual violated God's word. The next week, they're reading the scriptures to us to help us understand how to do the very thing that they did, but do it scripturally as opposed to violating God's word. And you say to yourself, oh, well, I guess that's biblical. That is Psalm 51 and verse 13. They've repented and now they're ready to teach everybody about this particular truth. I am trying to show you that that isn't serious soul work. That is this modern decadent type religion that is so nonsensical and so soulish that it grieves the heart of God. He says, first, I acknowledge my transgression. I've had this sin before me for some time. You need it before you for some weeks and months and even years, depending on what the issue is, before you would ever do what I just described and anoint yourself the now now the world's leading authority on, on the errors of the prophetic movement because two weeks ago you decided to turn away from it when you had been promoting it for months and months, breaking up churches and leading people astray for For example, that's a true scenario that I draw out of my own experiences from the past with other ministers. Verse 10 says, Create in me a clean heart, not give me a message, God, so I can, instead of repent, I can save face and I can do a hocus pocus to my own heart and everybody else and pretend that actually there was no sin There's nothing to see here. When Adam is hiding behind the tree, maybe he's working on the prohibitions of Genesis chapter 3 and coming up with a good message as to why you should not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Five good principles as to why you shouldn't do that. I don't know if you're hearing what I'm saying, but what he needs to be doing, which he wasn't doing, is facing his transgression and then saying, Lord... Don't create a message for me. Don't create some story for me to tell, to speak about the very thing that I have violated so I can project my own sins out there onto other people and make it look like everybody else violates this, but I don't. And how could that be? Well, it must be because I've got the message on this topic. Maybe three months ago, I was in an adulterous relationship And maybe I haven't even gotten that all worked out yet, but I'm going to teach on the family. I'm going to teach on right relationships and divine order. And as I say, I'm going to do a little bit of hypnotizing on the congregation. And this happens. The congregation starts by wondering, how does this make any sense? But as you go back and forth 
in the pulpit like a little watch before their eyes as the hypnotists do. And you keep moving back and forth on your text. And some don't have the spiritual development to see what's happening to them. They are seduced. They are hypnotized to thinking you're actually repenting. And you didn't start by saying, God, this is where I'm at in this process. Give me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. My concern is not that I can save face and make people think that now I've got this all sorted out. Don't think for a moment I didn't know what the Word of God said on this. Let me preach a message to prove that I know what it is. My concern is don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I need a place before you, Father God, that is so real so free from sin, so absolutely out of all this leaven that I can say I have a free spirit within me. I don't feel compelled to prove to other people that I understand this topic, that because of what I've gone through, I can teach you about how not to slander other people. Well, maybe you can, but not until verses 3 and 4 and 10 and 12 take place. And what I want you to see... Verse 13, after all of this, do you see the word then in verse 13? Then, that's very important. It's after I acknowledge my sin. After, after I'm so convicted, I'm so troubled. Does anybody understand these ideas? There's things that I committed years and years ago that still bother me anytime I think about it. And, you know, at some level you wonder if you're really free. And I'm not like a person that lives in constant condemnation or can't believe the grace of God and forgiveness. I don't think that's true of my life. I don't mind learning more about such matters, but it certainly isn't characteristic of my life. But brothers and sisters, there's something about real repentance that understands how deep these things go and cries out to God, cleanse me thoroughly from my sin, wash me of my iniquity, restore in some sense what I never had before but could have had. Now in Christ Jesus, the image of a perfect man as is Jesus Christ, bring freedom to my spirit. And verse 13 says, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Brethren, the ways that David is talking about here is not in his mind on the very topic of what he himself just violated, what he himself just committed in terms of specific sins. In other words, this isn't David following a little bit of conviction overnight then coming up with the scheme that I think that I will raise some funds and I will establish the King David Institute for Moral Excellence, where one of the primary sporting events of this college, and we might even grant, grant scholarships to qualifying individuals to join our team, the sporting event of the King David Institute for Moral Excellence, known as Fleeing Fornication. He wasn't thinking about how he would set up this institute so that he can now teach all of Israel on the very topic that he violated and working out in his mind, we're going to offer a bachelor degree in how not to study Bathsheba. 
You know, usually you get a bachelor's degree to study something or other. So in the King David Institute of Moral Excellence, it's we're going to offer you a bachelor's degree in how not to study the other woman. We'll offer you a master's degree in mastering your emotions. We'll offer you a doctorate in defending chastity in human decency so that you don't fornicate with another man's wife and then kill the husband. Now, that's a colorful way of making the point, which sadly, sometimes, though this perhaps is a little bit more comical, but not too much, wherein some individuals, I'm thinking primarily at this moment of a minister that I'm aware of, but it's happened in other settings, and it's the principle that we're describing to you. And one of the ways you just violate this all day long and make the whole thing murky is, like I'm saying, is when in two weeks you're writing a book as to how not to do the sin that you just were doing for the last 10, 15 years. Now, this might be common. People might slurp it up. It might work on the podcasts and the uh, sermon circuits or the conference, the conference conversations, you know, where you invite somebody up that was in a lifestyle of homosexuality or some such thing for 10, 15 years, and they've been out of it now for like a couple of months, and they're going to give their testimony and teach everybody else about how not to walk in that sin. You know, dear friends, trace some of those stories, and sometimes just a few more months, weeks, years, or less more, they're back in to either that sin or some version of scriptural compromise. No, dear brothers and sisters, I hope you caught the point that David isn't thinking about, I'm going to teach transgressors about how to live a moral life. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is stated by himself in Psalm 32, verse 5. Listen to what he says. I acknowledge my sin unto thee. So far, so good. What is he doing? Is he teaching a class on fleeing fornication? Is that what he's doing? No, he's acknowledging his sin to God. And my iniquity, I'm not hiding. I'm not trying to save face and hide behind what I just did by reading a text that actually speaks to what I just did, but I'm reading it, so I guess I didn't do it. You didn't see me do it because I'm reading that you don't do that. I know nobody here would ever do that, but then again, we all have to watch our hearts, don't we? I said I will confess, not teach a course, on what I violated, I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So far, so good. Are you with me in verse 5? What has he done? Everything is to the Lord. What is he doing? He's displaying the way of repentance. Is that not right? He's showing in himself, in his actions, what a repentant person looks like, not by teaching a course on the sin that he had been in the habit of violating, but simply repenting before God and confessing his sin before the Lord. Is that not right? Verse 6 says, For this, because of this demonstration of truth, because of this teaching moment that I have now become, for this reason, 
not because I established the King David Institute for Moral Excellence, but for this that I did in my person, manifesting the model of a repentant sinner, for this shall every one that is godly, for this shall every one that follows this example, my life, in the mode of repentance toward God, as they see what David did, I will then teach transgressors what repentance actually looks like. For this shall everyone that is godly, who cares about true repentance, they will pray unto thee in a time when you may be found. And then he says, Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. That is, the waters will not overflow or bring about destruction. And of course, that is a hearkening back to the Noahic flood. He's saying, if sinners are going to repent and be delivered from God's wrath, they're going to follow my example. That's not the same thing as David standing up and writing a manual as to how to defend chastity and human decency by not committing adultery and murdering your fellow soldier and friend. I trust you're getting the point of what I'm saying. If you're wondering, wouldn't his life teach that as well? Sure enough, no problems there. But I'm telling you, if in two or three weeks or two or three months, David comes up with some manual on this topic... That isn't his best form of teaching. That's secondary. Oh, sure, brothers and sisters, don't misunderstand me. If he gets so utterly free in his soul from every trace of that sin, if he has, like Solomon, a profound, deep mea culpa, then you know what he can do is much like what Solomon did, as a matter of fact. For 11 chapters, he is simply going to say and confess everything that he did wrong. And then in the last chapter, he's going to kind of teach you just in a few words. Here's your whole duty. Fear God, keep his commandments. What David is saying in Psalm 32 and what he means in Psalm 51 and verse 13 is simply this. And it's happening while he's before God, by the way, in Psalm 51. He's not thinking about establishing the King David Institute for moral excellence so he can teach all of Israel how not to sin with the various women as a way of saving face. He is writing a psalm that is going to be sung on the theme of repentance before the entire nation so they can hear his clear repentance. And that's what's teaching them. He's teaching them not to obfuscate and act like you're the authority on the very thing you've been violating. He is saying, show us what repentance looks like. Teach us in that way. That is what will really bring conversion to your children. Conversion to the church is when people see seeking to save face and simply get before God and acknowledge their sin. Then we can say, for this reason, everyone that the grace of God comes to and is drawing them to a godly lifestyle, they will pray unto God at a time when he may be found as opposed to no 
nobody ever repenting even when there's a preacher of righteousness like Noah in their midst and as a consequence the floods of God's wrath send them down to their damnation. One quotation from Thomas Manton the Puritan and then one remark of Jesus to Peter and we will indeed close this study for this afternoon. Thomas Manton says with respect to David's remark in Psalm 51, he had found, David had found, how bitter a thing it was to provoke God by sin. And he could tell them, his fellow Jewish friends and associates, members of the commonwealth of Israel, in our case, members of the church, family members, he could tell them such stories of it as would make their hearts to awaken. Precisely what Psalm 51 does, by the way, when you read about David's repentance, not his instructions on how not to fornicate, when you read about David's repentance, it awakens your own heart. And as Manton goes on to say, and cause them to hate their own sin. The faith and knowledge which God has given you, sinner that has come to repentance, may direct and preserve others. Your temptations may work toward the comforting of others who are tempted. It is the act of expressing the bitterness in my soul because of my sin before God and sharing that story with my brothers and sisters, that is what I'm teaching the transgressors. That is what I'm offering to encourage others to turn from their own sins. Not a manual. Not for starters anyway. Not for starters anyway is my point. I'm not setting up laws, but I wish not to digress into all these footnotes to take away from the impact of the point. So, not for starters, not a manual on the topic, but a demonstration of clear repentance. And so, Jesus, using this very idea, says to Peter on a certain occasion, Luke 22 and verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, as if Peter is in danger of reverting to the old man. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. And between the lines, as it were, between verse 31 and verse 32, as was the case in the life of David, and has been in other of God's children, perhaps yourself included, temptation is going to come your way. Satan is going to seek to draw you aside, ye that are running well presently. And some are going to fall into sin, not because it was unavoidable, but because they are chasing after their own lust and they have turned aside from the voice and the word of God. For after all, in this case, the voice of God is warning Peter, but he's still going to turn to his own interests. All of that is occurring between verse 31 and verse 32. Satan is going to come after you, Jesus is saying. And even some of God's ministers and some of God's choice disciples are going to fall into sin. 
But the grace of God, as David himself experienced, will nonetheless come to their lives. Otherwise, there is no hope. Otherwise, they're not even in the church to share anything with us. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith will not utterly fail, that you will get back up again. And he did not say to Peter, when you get back up, then teach a course on how not to deny Christ three times before the cock crows twice with cursings and other grotesque versions of disloyalty. He says, when you are turned around, strengthen your brethren. Tell them the story, which is entirely what the Spirit of God did with Peter's approval, I'm sure. Tell the story of what you did and how you went out and wept bitterly. Didn't get around the corner and start putting together a message on how not to deny the Lord that you can preach at the foot of the cross so that no one will ever know that you actually cursed Him. When you are converted, strengthen your brethren by letting them see what happened in your life, what repentance should look like, and then just giving God the praise and saying, Simon, Peter, a servant and an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ in the common faith like everybody else. I'm just a servant of the Lord. Yes, I'm free enough in my spirit now to teach you under the anointing about some of these things. But I don't set myself up as like the world's authority. And I never fell. I'm David. I've got all my Proverbs and my Psalms about who shall ascend the hill of the Lord. I'll teach you all. But I never fell. We won't put that in the Davidic University for moral excellence. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, I realize that I'm covering this territory in layers. But I'm finishing now by encouraging you as well and myself. Strengthen one another fundamentally by showing us what repentance looks like.